My name is Benji Stone, and 1954 was my favorite year. Not my best year, not the year I had the most success, but my favorite year. It's the year that separated my life into before and after. You see, in 1954, I made the jump from smart-ass kid from the deli pushing a joke with every crawler to freshman writer on TV's hottest show, The King Kaiser Comedy Cavalcade. And every Saturday night at 8 p.m., we went on the air live. Five minutes. God, once, just once I wanted to sneak in and diddle the clock so we'd go on the air five minutes early so America would see the show before the show. But back then, they were a lot more careful about violence on television. Ah! I'm missing a button. This is crap! I'm missing the last two pages. They told me the caveman sketch was out. When somebody shoot me! Total crap! Who ordered the black no sugar? And welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, May 27, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. He is also the Master of Ceremonies. Did I call you that, Peter, at the Theater World Awards? Oh, um, <laughs> I got my jokes ready. Whether or not they're good jokes, we'll see. But yeah, on uh, Monday, June 4th at 2 o'clock at Circle in the Square, we'll be doing the Theatre World Awards, which are given out to people making outstanding Broadway or off-Broadway debuts, uh, as well as uh, Lionel Larner and the Dorothy Loudon Foundation giving out the Dorothy Loudon Prize because she was an early winner and she was very loyal to the organization. And um, he'll be giving that out. And the Board of Directors gives out the John Willis Award, named for the gentleman who shepherded these awards for a third of a century from 63 to 96. So, um, yeah, so we're going to have uh, – everybody's going to be in attendance, I'm happy to say. All the winners, all 14 of them uh, are going to be there. And um, so uh, it's going to be really nice. And and, um, and we have uh, some nifty presenters uh, there, too, um, headed by Bernadette Peters. So it's good, a good time should be had by all. Oh, that's exciting to hear. Theater World Awards are always a lot of fun. Um, also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. And I just wanted to say I'm really looking forward to the theater worlds as, as every year. I think uh, since there's you know, relatively few winners, I think I think we should name them. Um, that we have uh, Anthony Boyle for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Jamie Brewer for Amy and the Orphans, Noma Dumezwini for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Johnny Flynn for Hangman, Denise Goff for Angels in America, Harry Haddon Payton for My Fair Lady, Haley Kilgore Once on This Island, James McArdle, Angels in America, Lauren Ridloff, Children of a Lesser God, Ethan Slater, SpongeBob SquarePants, Charlie Stemp, Hello Dolly, and Katie Sullivan, Cost of Living. In addition, Victor Garber will receive the sixth annual John Willis Award for Lifetime Achievement uh, in the theater. He was last seen on Broadway in the revival of Hello Dolly. 
Now, I, I wasn't going to do it in this order, but this seems like a natural transition. So, Michael, we also were going to talk about the Cheetah Rivera Awards. So uh, do you want to uh, give us a little info on that? Yeah, the Cheetah Rivera Awards, formerly the Astaire Awards, were presented on Sunday, May 20th at, uh, at NYU, the Skirball Center. And the winners were uh, as follows. Uh, Outstanding choreography in a Broadway show, Sergio Trujillo for Summer, the Donna Summer musical, which uh, we'll see if uh, if that winds up being the only award that that show wins during award season. Maybe not. Uh, perhaps one of the cast members. Um, outstanding ensemble in a Broadway show was a tie for Carousel and Mean Girls. Outstanding male dancer in a Broadway show went to Tony Yazbek for Prince of Broadway. Uh, and uh, he certainly has gotten a lot of attention for that performance, and rightly so. Uh, outstanding female dancer in a Broadway show. Oh, well, here you go again. Ariana DeBose, Summer, the Donna Summer musical. So that that's uh, at least two for them. Uh, outstanding choreography in an off-Broadway show. Zach Morris and Janine Willett for Ghost Light. Outstanding female dancer in an off-Broadway show. Monica Bill Barnes for One Night Only, an outstanding male dancer in an off-Broadway show, Robert Fairchild, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, he is, uh, you know, until, what is until recently uh, exclusively a professional ballet dancer and now has really switched over to theater and apparently trying to do film and TV as well and having great success in that area. So, um, yeah. That, that was the, the Cheetah Rivera Awards. It's Saturday night. I need a new zipper. This is crap. They told me they cut King Tut last night. Somebody show me here If only we had another week. With us today, we have a very special guest. Evan Pappas is joining us by telephone. Broadway fans know Evan from Parade, from My Favorite Year, from A Chorus Line. He's also uh, a director who's directed uh, most recently off-Broadway in A Letter to Harvey Milk, and he is the artistic director of a new theater on Babylon on Long Island uh, called the Argyle Theater, which is right now... uh, Oh, showing Guys and Dolls. Uh, we'll talk about that for a second. And he is actually uh, getting ready for auditions for the next production of Hairspray. So, Evan, thanks for getting up on a Saturday morning and chatting with us. <laughs> you know I'm not good in the morning. Thank I you. know. I know you're not good in the morning. And we, we tried to work this out, but uh, this is who when in, we record. Who in show business, who, who in show business is good on, in the morning? And what, what's, the name, what's the name of that Cole Porter song, But In The Morning, No? No, right. Yeah. But In The Morning, No. I, I directed that show. I know We all laughed about that, yes. <laughs> you know, it's been a deal breaker. It's yeah. been a deal breaker for a handful of peoples that uh, people that would um, say, "Oh, we'd love to be on the show," and I'm like, "Hey, we record Sunday morning." They were like, "Oh, I really can't," do uh. you know. So, <laughs> so thanks so much. So tell us, how Thank did you, you end up? How did you end up hooking up with the Argyle Theater in Babylon? This is their inaugural yeah. season. When did it? When yeah. did your relationship start? Well, I actually I've known uh, uh, Mark and Dylan Perlman for uh, many years, and uh, they had this dream of opening a theater. They found this amazing 
old movie vaudeville house from way back when um, that turned into a triplex movie theater years later to compete. And then that went down. They found this place about four years ago and bought it, renovated it, new stage, new backstage, new dressing rooms, uh, new orchestra pit, new everything. And uh, they kept it. We kept the old movie theater seats because they weren't that old. They have those cup holders. So that makes everybody happy. Um, Mm -hmm. Very comfortable. And uh, so we're 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 rolling out with a bang. It's a very ambitious season. Um, I think I may have said before I I don't uh, sleep much anymore, and that's part of the game um, with my New York life and my Babylon life. Uh, it's it's uh, it's intense and exciting, and uh, I'm still smiling. <laughs> You know, it's it's always been amazing to me. Um, I covered New Jersey theater for a number of years, and there were 20-odd professional theaters in the uh, state. And it's always amazed mm-hmm. me, comparatively speaking, there's been so little theater on Long Island. Uh, and I'm very glad to hear that this is happening. So this is an Thank old you. movie house, uh, right? Yeah, it was, it, was called, it was called The Avalon. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, and there was, uh, even a, there was a loading dock, everything. I mean, it really, I think they did, I, I want to say that they did do some old vaudeville in there. Um, uh, and it was, I think they were looking at maybe possibly the city with the, the, the area was looking at possibly tearing it down because they didn't, mm. they, nothing was going in and they're, they're so thrilled that there's some arts coming to Babylon now. And um, so we, and there is, and there is, there is wonderful theater out here in Long Island. Um, But yes, it's not like, you know, other areas. I think there's more and more others, Patchogue performing arts. There's Noel Ruiz, there's Smithtown, there's John Engerman, there's Gateway. Um, And now we're the newer and we're close to the city. And so it's pretty exciting to join, join this group of uh, artists that have, you know, paved the way. Easily accessible from the Long Island Railroad, we might add. Oh, it's fantastic. Babylon is the hub. There's trains every 20, 30 minutes. So it, it, it's so appealing to the artists in New York City because the most from Penn Station, it's an hour. And uh, it takes, you know, from the Upper West Side to Brooklyn, it takes an hour. All right. Once you get at the train station, uh, what happens then? Uh, can you walk? It's is a, there a- it's a it's a simple five-minute walk through the Good. lovely, lovely downtown area of Babylon. It is the, the coolest, the hippest, the chicest, bohemian chic, as I call it. Um, weekends are mobbed with people. The restaurants and the bars and the shops are – it's just wonderful out here. When I got off the train about a year ago when I, when we were first starting to put – you know, all the renovations were starting, and I thought, what's – I've never been to Babylon. What's Babylon? I, I just You just go by it all the time. And I got off the train. I was walking through the village. I, I was absolutely just I, I, it's an, I was enamored. I, 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 it's, it's so lovely. It's just it's the coolest area. Um, I don't mind coming to work here at all. Never in a million years did I think I'd find a new career in Babylon, Long Island. And here I am, and I, 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 I embrace it. It's great here. You skip two highlights, and Peter, let me fill you in here. Is that mm-hmm. once you get off mm-hmm. the train, once you get off the train and head down to the to the Argyle Theater, there are two ice cream places in between the train station. There There's Coldstone Creamery, story. and mm. that's right. I'm look, yeah. I'm looking at it right now. Yes. Yeah, and <laughs> so it's really important, and also uh, it's important. And there's 
there's this a fantastic bakery called Tortesina. Oh, yes. it's just the, the two guys that run it. Mm. It's fantastic. Um, and there's there's some. I've eaten a lot of the restaurants here already and made friends with people there. And mm. yeah, they, they've they've got they've got a they've got a hot. Hot, this is a really hot spot. This whole area is really. Quick. If 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 there's ice cream and pastries, I'm taking a cab right now. You'll. <laughs> I'm waiting for you. Who said that? I'm waiting for you. I'll be here all day. Uh, you could have a cast party over at Swell Taco. You know, it's a. Uh, oh, I've, eat, I've eaten there twice. Swell Taco is great. So let's get Swell back to the. Let's, let's get back talk about the theater, the right, theater yeah. part of it. So, uh, tell us about your Guys and Dolls cast. You brought out a number of Broadway professionals. I did. I did. Um, Elizabeth Broadhurst, she's brilliant, um, playing Miss Adelaide. Todd Bonapane is playing Nathan. The two are terrific together. Spencer Platy is playing Sky. Uh, he's one of the best actors I've ever worked with. They all are. I mean, seriously. Um, uh, Melissa Maris, I'm going to get the name wrong. Matisich, I get it wrong every time. Please, <laughs> Melissa, don't kill me. Um, she's playing Sarah. Uh, uh, we have uh, Robert Anthony Jones is playing Nicely Nicely, Bring It Down the House. And he's actually a local, which is very exciting. We've got a few locals in the group. It's great. Uh, it's it, we've, We had, I know this sounds cliche, but I like to assemble, uh, when I turned to directing, what, 10 years ago now, I think it was, and felt... I'm pretty sure. Um, I a goal for me is always to assemble nice families, a talented, good, nice families who want to go on the journey, who uh, are open to everything. And I I was lucky to assemble another one because this was our first show. And I said to them, look, the new theater, new show. You know, we're going to hit a lot of snags. We're going to hit you know some walls. I need you to be problem solvers and run with it. And know this is paving the way for a new theater for uh, artists. And they they jumped. They were they're thrilled to be here. We're having a great time. Uh, I hope you get to see the show. It's it's pretty spectacular. The design is great. Um, I, I don't think Babylon was expecting this when we opened the doors, and they're they're very excited about it. So it's how long is happy. the run? How long is the run? We're running through uh, June seventeenth. Mm-hmm. We're doing Thursdays Thursdays through Sundays. Yeah. And Figuring out comes... our audiences, demographic, sure. you know the whole sure, thing. Sure. You know. Yeah. So then comes hairspray. That comes here, spray. When does that open? June? Oh, God. 14? I mean, July? July 14th? Somewhere in there. Okay. <laughs> 16, uh, yeah. So is this going to be simply a summertime operation, or are you going to go through the year? What? Oh, no. This is year-round. Um, we're, mm-hmm. we're doing... We're going for that big regional theater thing. Doing we're doing year round, so we're doing a superstar with guys and dolls, hairspray. Then we're doing um, Peter and the Starcatcher, and then we're doing Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, mm. however you want to say it. Mm. Then we're doing Spring Awakening, and then we're closing the year with the producers. Could it be any larger? Yeah, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's it's, it's are, are big. You, are you doing all of them? Oh no 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 no! Um, I'm directing uh, two to three a year, a season. Um, along with my artistic duties, director duties, and uh, uh, Antoinette Di Pietro Polo is directing the next uh, Hairspray. She's directing choreographing. She's a, a good friend of mine. Um, and then Amanda Connors is directing Peter and the Star Catcher in the fall. Uh, I will probably do Hunchback, and then mm-hmm. from there we'll see what's happening. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's 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 big, and so you know I'm, I'm assembling all the creative teams, which is great fun because I. I have, you know, I have a lot of friends in the business through the years, as Peter will tell you, and um, and I, I, it's exciting to be able to bring on these people now, you know, people I admire, whom I've admired for years. Now they get to come play it. 
in my pod, yes. Let's change gears from the Argyle Theater to Off-Broadway, where you have uh, a letter to Harvey Milk. Uh, tell us about your, yeah. your history with Harvey, this Harvey Milk play. Yeah, that's a beautiful piece. We're very proud of it. It's, um, uh, you know, years ago they did it at NIMS. Gosh, I, I, mm-hmm. I think it was NIMS, pretty sure. Yeah. And, um, and uh, they did it, and they did very well. And then um, they went through a hard time where one of the, the writers passed. And so um, they put it away for a couple of years. And then uh, I got a call to direct a reading a couple of years ago. And uh, I put it, I had a different vision for the piece. And they were very happy with it. And then a year later, I got a call that it was running off Broadway. And, you know, as you guys know, how often does that happen from a reading? You know, it's, um, and so it was very exciting. And uh, we assembled this beautiful cast. Again, I repeat, another fantastic family. They love working together. They love going to work. They love being on stage for 90 minutes, you know, a night uh, per show. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gorgeous piece that just sneaks up on you in the end, and people don't expect, you know, they're watching this lovely slice of life with these very interesting characters, lots of twists and turns. You go, where is this going to go? Where is this going to go? And then it just sneaks up on you, and it just it gets you in the end. It's, it's quite beautiful. Word of mouth yes, is great. Really I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I felt exactly that experience while I was watching the show. And it's so nice to see a, a veteran actor like Adam Heller doing so well. But where oh. did you find this wonderful Julia? How do you pronounce her last Julia, name? Julia Nitel. Isn't she something? Phenomenal. But phenomenal. I can't say enough about this woman. And to watch the chemistry between her and Adam every night, and they have become very, very close. In fact, they're going to do, when we close at the end of June, they're going out to the Mirny to do um, uh, 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 Gypsy together. Uh, it's, it's Adam and uh, Beth Level. And, uh, nice. Julia's, and, Ju- and Julia's playing uh, Gypsy, young Gypsy. How nice. So they created her- a... Yeah, uh, I saw her in the um, uh, in the concert version of "Dance a Little Closer," that uh, was done at the Green Room Forty Two, and yeah, she really is terrific. Yeah, she's 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 very special. I, I, I seriously, I, I I could go on and on and on about this woman. She's going to be something huge. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go on to say that what's wonderful about her is that she doesn't seem as if she's acting for a tenth of a second. Right. It's, nope. it's such a wonderful, real uh, human being performance. She's, yes. And I, her background is also her, her parents are in the business, and that helped a lot. You know, yeah. she's been around it. She's been around it all her life. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. She's special. Yeah, you, men- yeah. you mentioned that uh, one of the writers of uh, Letter to Harvey Milk died, and I know that Cheryl Stern, who is in the show, uh, is credited as one of the co-authors. Yeah, Did Ellen, she- Ellen, Ellen passed away, and, and um, Cheryl, Cheryl was in the original. She's been a part of it from the beginning, it's as was as uh, has uh, Marco, Michael Bartoli, who plays uh, an uncanny Harvey Milk, and. Um, the show started from the beginning and they brought her on to continue with lyrics and book writing. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. We love our Cheryl. Last year we talked with, uh, Alan Menken and David Spencer about Duddy Kravitz and, uh, <laughs> and you, uh, you, uh, directed, uh, Duddy over at the York. So tell us about your experience there and, and do you know anything happening with Duddy? Cause we're looking forward to seeing it again. It's pretty great, isn't it? Um, I have quite—I have a lovely history with Dodie Kravitz. 
25 years ago, I was one of the first Dodie Kravitzes. I did a couple of readings for them, um, and uh, it was pretty thrilling. And I, I keep joking with David Spencer. because you sure you can't still play it? I said, David, uh-huh. I'm 110 years old now. I can't play that role anymore. Uh-huh. Um, but they, I did. He's always wanted me to take a stab at putting it together. And uh, and so I directed it at the York for them, which was uh, it went really well, I'm happy to say. And uh, I think they saw, you know, what the next, hopefully what the next steps are with script. And, you know, it's hard. It's a large-ish cast. And these days, people don't want to see that large a cast. It's very hard to produce something like that. And so it's a matter of, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you turn it down? How do you, you know, how do you uh, make it more accessible financially? And um, I have been, I still been, I'm still talking with David Spencer about it and, you know, we all know this business and, 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 and the incarnations that peace goes through, you know, to get it somewhere. I do think it has such beautiful merit. I do wish somebody would pick this up um, and, 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 and uh, produce it somewhere. Cause it's, it's, it's pretty, it's lovely. I mean, Alan and David's work is just beautiful together. Yeah. You know, I, I love the piece. If you're unwilling to do Duddy Kravitz, then uh, as a role, then uh, <laughs> I'm I'm almost thinking that it's out of the question that if Encores does my favorite year, you won't come back as Benji. <laughs> no, now I would come back. Jokingly, I would come back as uh, the mute. <laughs> you know, they, they a re- duck. They, they re- or a duck. I come back. Right. I come back as the duck. I would just make an appearance. Uh, you know, they they. Uh, Stephen and Lynn, uh, um, Lynn and C. Flaherty, they rewrote, uh, they rewritten since, and they did it at the York a couple years ago, and then they just did a 25th anniversary at uh, 54 Below that I went and um, uh, introduced the evening. It was a beautiful, amazing cast, and I love the rewrites. I, I, they just, I, in fact, I, I said to Lynn, I said, where were these rewrites 25 years ago? Um, they're really terrific. And I, mm. that's another piece. Yes, I wish they would find a way to just get that revived again, um, especially with what they've done with it now. It's, it's pretty great. It flies. Um, you know, Alan Swan's introduced way earlier in the show because before he didn't come in for a good chunk of time. And then when he did finally come in, we lost him, the, the character again for another 20 minutes. And I remember the audiences, they just wanted to see the two, you know, the young the young Benji and Alan Swan, they wanted to see them together sooner and they've managed to fit that in. They've managed to make that work and it's, and they've written some new songs and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I have have a fondness as you know, for the piece. (laughs) So uh, we've been talking so much about the past. Uh, Tell us about the future. Anything that uh, we, we haven't mentioned so far that you want to uh, talk about? Oh, I have been, gentlemen, I have been ensconced in the new theater. It is, I uh, just, I, it's 24 seven for me now. Um, and I knew this would be, and all my friends in the industry and all my other artistic director friends have said, you're perfect for this. Know that your first year is going to be tough. And you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a lot of, a lot of no sleep and I'm getting better at it. <laughs> that, that and vodka. <laughs> Evan, let's open up this new theater and you're like great and they said but we need you to be on a train at eight o'clock in the morning on a saturday they're like good luck with the theater you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know we it's and this and this is the thing you know one tries to multitask and and one's getting good at it um you're trying to get everything in and 
you know, I, I, I've said this a million times, and I think people are sick of hearing me say this, but I always say, if you can't have fun while, while creating art, then why, why do it? Mm-hmm. And I, I do believe that there is a happiness to it. There's a joy to it. Um, um, yes, it, it can be, it could be difficult as we all know. Um, we have, we can have our hearts broken and, uh, and, and we can also find, uh, lovely success and create more work for so many people. Um, and that is what I think it's about. You know, it's, I, 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 I love, I love being able to assemble families and watch them work. You know, it's the one thing as an actor that I, I loved so much was just being on stage and, and playing, you know, it's like a playground. And so now I get to do it on all levels and that's, that's exciting. Um, and I'm learning like you wouldn't believe. Oh my gosh. You know, some things I go, Oh, Hey, Ev today, good day. You did a lot of things. Right. And then I have other days. I'm like, Oh, Ev, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, we'll, we'll let you get to your uh, auditions. They must be starting soon. Uh, listeners can catch up with Evan Pappas at his website, evanpappas.net. We have links to Facebook and Twitter. Check out the Argyle Theater. We have links to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Guys and Dolls is playing through June 17th. And, uh, mm-hmm. and also A Letter to Harvey Milk, still at the Acorn Theater off-Broadway. So yeah. And if you want to, if you want to write a letter to Evan, make sure you title it, head it, Dear Evan Pappas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show. I love that my name's on Broadway. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! And you just reminded me that I need to update my website. There you go. That's how busy I am. My, my stuff gets neglected. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, Evan. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk with you soon. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. In our review section, Peter, you got a chance to get over to the Vineyard Theater to see Beast in the Jungle. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, uh, this is pretty extraordinary. Uh, It's a very different show from John Kander, and this is one show where nobody will ask him, which came first, the music or the lyrics? Because there are no lyrics in Beast in the Jungle. Uh, There's nothing for anybody to sing. What John Kander has done is provided music, and music only, for the director-choreographer Susan Stroman and her dance play. Now, that's what they call it. It's not a musical, but a dance play. And um, you can tell right from the beginning it's going to be an elegant um, score because you look it up in the balcony at the vineyard and you will see – a nine-piece orchestra, which is very generous for Off-Broadway. I think Mamma Mia only had nine pieces during its run. I may be wrong about that, but I think that's what I once heard. But here's an Off-Broadway show with nine pieces, including a harp. When there's a harp in the orchestra, you know it's going to be an elegant score. So um, so, so it sounds like Contact, um, Susan Stroman's uh, previous uh, Tony-winning show that um, relied on dancing and not much um, in the way of... Um, lyrics and um, dialogue 
But um, this one is far more dialogue heavy, and um, it's based on one story rather than three, and that's a, a novella by Henry James that he wrote in 1903 with the same title, The Beast in the Jungle. But David Thompson, uh, who's worked with these people before, needless to say, has um, augmented the story tremendously. And I think um, he's done a good job in making the tale substantially more engrossing. So um, so the story that James wrote was about a guy named John Marcher, who um, won the love of Mary Bartram and then did nothing to retain it. He He had this type of uneasiness that something bad was going to happen to him. And I, I don't know if it's a case where he, he felt that if he married May, that she would get involved with something terrible happening to her. Maybe that was it. Uh, maybe he was a precursor to Bobby and company where um, he was afraid to make a commitment. But a lot of people think that uh, because Henry James himself lived this um, asexual lifestyle that he was um, expressing his own life, uh, that he wouldn't be up to the challenges of every relationship, um, no matter how solid they are, you know, in and out of bed, you know, relationships can be tough. So, uh, so these are good questions. And uh, David Thompson explores them and answers some of those questions while doing something very uh, radical for uh, an adaptation of a short story, and that is he adds two important characters, very important characters. Strangely enough, he doesn't give them names, which surprised me, given that John and May have names, um, but he simply refers to them as nephew and husband. Okay, nephew was who we meet first. Um, So nephew is a short story writer, ironically enough, and he comes over to his uncle's place, and that's John in this case. And he tells him he broke up with his girlfriend because, indeed, she wanted to get married. And um, frankly, it might have even been that she threw him out uh, because he wouldn't marry her. And that gets John started on his story, a flashback where he talks about um, that he made a mistake in his life, that he should have gotten involved with May. So we actually go back 50 years. It takes place in the present time, 2018. You can tell it's present time because <laughs> John complains about texting very early in the piece. And um, so we go back to 1968 when they met and um, they met in the Soviet Union, ironically enough, and they met in the museum. Now, what's really very clever is the fact that um, there are six dancers who come on, all of them dressed identically in um, crimson. And um, there's John, uh, now played by the younger uh, man who we saw as nephew. Now he's going to play the younger John, or younger Marcher, as it says in the program. And um, so we know from his looking at these women and ogling these women that nevertheless, because they're all dressed the same, that therefore every woman is the same to him. Nobody's special. They're one size fits all. As long as she's a woman, she's worth pursuing and she's worth having. Well, then in comes this woman dressed in orange. Not flaming orange but uh, a muted orange but orange and you can tell that the point is that she's different um she, he sees her differently and so he's the one um so she's the one that he's going to pursue so um and what's really great is that she doesn't take um any guff from him um she's not the least bit not the least bit uh, swayed by who he is, um, and um, she she certainly has the the lines to um, combat him um, because they're in a museum. She talks about I can always spot a fake um, in terms of paintings, but of course she means him as well. He says to her, "You're teasing me," and she says, "No, 
you are teasing them, meaning the women. And so he's really taken aback, you know, and also, uh, and you get in the way of my seeing the painting. (laughs) But she doesn't say the painting. She says, and you get in the way. And she means you get in the way and um, get in my life. But, you know, it's one of these stories where, um, the woman is uh, very hard bitten at first, but once she comes to love John, she loves him more than he loves her. So um, that's that's going to prove a problem. And it goes on like that. We then go 20 years forward, and that's where husband comes in. And the husband is May's husband. She got married. And um, so now John really feels that she's uh, lost forever and he missed his chance. And wasn't I stupid to to feel that way? And uh, but on the other hand, she still loves him. So what's going to happen with husband? And there is a (laughs) very funny scene, um, a marvelous idea of how they get. I don't. I don't mean get together in, uh, carnally, but they they do reunite. Um, I'm trying to be ginger here, uh, not to give it away, but um, they <laughs> they um, they manage to sneak uh, a moment together while the husband is right there in front of them. Yeah, I know that's cryptic, but I want it to be uh, because I want you to see the show because it really is terrific. One of the reasons it's terrific is that uh, we have Tony Yazbek in the role of nephew and young Marcher, remember. So he has a lot to do. And because he has a lot to do, um, we're not just talking about delivering dialogue. He has to dance tremendously, and he does dance tremendously. And, you know, I truly believe that if this show had opened a couple of months earlier and the Tony committee had sauntered down off Broadway, I know that I have a responsibility to do it, but I imagine Tony um, nominated see off-Broadway shows. I think if they had gone to see this, if it had opened earlier – they would have given him a nomination for Prince of Broadway because they would have been reminded how terrific he is. He has really become one of our most valuable uh, leading men uh, because when he dances balletic moves, I mean, some men look um, silly or a feat, and he doesn't at all. He does it extraordinarily well, and because he's got those rugged good looks, um, it really helps him amazingly and uh, makes him a, a tremendously magnetic personality. So Peter Friedman plays the older John and um, of course he has far less to do but he does it with um, great regret and a grim mouth you know while telling his tale but um, we also have to um, <clears throat> credit um, Irina Dvorovenko I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right she was a big star in the ballet world and she was with the American um, Ballet Theater for 14 years and um, and it, if you saw the Grand Hotel at Encores um, she was um, the ballerina in that too so um, she's really terrific certainly with dancing as you'd expect and uh, what's really nice is that she's very good at delivering the dialogue as well so um, I think this is really a worthwhile piece to see and uh, the music is so glorious Um, it's mostly in three-quarter time and so people are going to say well you know so Sondheim did that a long time ago didn't he with a little night music yeah that's true but you know what I was reminded of the fact when um, 
when um, Night Music opened in 73, Clive Barnes, who was then the critic for The Times, said, good God, an adult musical. Well, Beast uh. from the Jungle really um, applies there, too. And But today, a sophisticated show is even more unexpected and welcome when so many musicals are, are kids' stuff. But, um, you know, in a way... John Kander is returning to his roots because he started out doing dance music mm. um, for uh, Gypsy and um, Irma LaDuce, in fact. And um, he was in his early 30s then, just starting out. And uh, he didn't have that much work to do in those shows. Here he has a lot more work. He has 17 selections to write here. And um, that's pretty good for a man who's now in his early 90s. You know, I mean, considering that revivals of Cabaret... And, of course, Chicago has, have put more money in Candor's bank account than some suburban banks have in their vaults. Uh, the man doesn't need to work, does he? And how wonderful that he wants to. And how wonderful that he still can deliver phenomenal music. A friend and I uh, have had this fantasy that wouldn't it be amazing if John Candor hooked up with Sheldon Harnick? And yeah, they I wrote, wish they would. Yeah. And an amazing new, you know, the, the last of the Golden Age musicals is what we're thinking it would be called. That would be incredible. It sure would. And uh, for that matter, I we certainly know of shows that Sheldon Hunter worked on that didn't happen. One uh, that comes to mind immediately is Trafalgar. Um, I imagine he's, that was close to being produced. I mean, it was optioned and all that. Um, so... Um, what if uh, Sheldon brings over his lyrics to John Kander and says, uh, here's what I got. Um, why not uh, work on it? I think, um, what was the name of the play? John Arden. I think John Arden, the British playwright, was writing the book. I don't know how much of it exists. But, um, but yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it'd be great for two non-Agerians to, uh, mm. to have a smash hit musical and one that we'd be interested in seeing. Uh, so, Michael, we have uh, a press release here that the Min Theater Company is going to do a uh, benefit reading of Lilium. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this is your golden opportunity, folks. Um, mm. Don't let it pass by. Uh, Carousel, of course, is mm. one of the season's big musical revivals. And this is a quite a, a rare uh, performance reading of the original play, Lilium by Ferenc Molnar, uh, the Hungarian playwright, upon which Carousel is very, very closely based, um, as you, you will see if you get to see Lilium. I uh, actually saw an adaptation of it a few months ago that I reported on that Michael Weller did, but this is not that adaptation. This is apparently the original script. I'm, I'm not sure which... Um, translation it is but uh it's got a, it's the mint theater company is preventing a benefit reading of lilium and it's the stars are george abud chris reed brown michael frederick robert david grant elise kibler erica knight alexis shea niziak tom sesma michael chance sandra shipley bobby conti thornton and Jennifer Van Dyke. Um, this is one of those cases where the release doesn't say who's playing what. I imagine that Bobby Conti Thornton is either um, Lilium, the Billy, Billy Bigelow equivalent, or perhaps he's the Jigger Cragen equivalent. And, uh, you know, I know several of these other actors, Sandra Shipley, Tom Sesma, um, 
can maybe think who, who they which roles they might be playing. Uh, and Jennifer Van Dyke, uh, as a friend of mine said, has got to be the Mrs. Mullen counterpart. Um, maybe we're wrong about that. Anyway, it's all directed by Jesse Marchese. One night only, Monday, June 11th at 7 p.m. at Theater Row. And um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a ve- it's so fascinating to see uh, for so many reasons, but also how very, very close some of the scenes are, including uh, really quite a bit of dialogue that basically is lifted for almost verbatim from Lillian and put into Carousel, uh, translated first, of course, but <laughs> uh, and so, sometimes put in a New England uh, patois. But that's that's what I've that's what struck me the the two or three times that I've seen productions of Lillian in the past, and uh, this is really a, a great opportunity that the men. Uh, theater is offering to people, and I think everyone should try to grab it. By the way, I have to say, I was thinking of Lilium and Carousel while I was watching Beast in the Jungle because um, there's a very famous story that um, when Rogers and Hammerstein wrote Carousel and Molnar came to see, I think, a dress rehearsal, they're very worried because they made the ending a bit more uplifting than his was, and um, they I- thought. They were going to say, oh, my God, you, you ruined my piece. You know? And he came up and he said, you know what I like best? I like the ending. Well, um, frankly, uh, Beast in the Jungle, as much as I like it, does have an ending that I think um, should be uh, excised. Uh, what actually happens for the last few seconds of the show, I think, is a bit of a downer where uh, the penultimate thing that happens is something that I think is uplifting. Mm-hmm. So um, so I, I hope that um, <laughs> the creators of Beast in the Jungle, go see Lillian and say, you know, <laughs> maybe we should just end it uh, uh, one scene um, shorter. So, uh, but it did come to mind. Uh, so, yes, do be prepared for a for a less uh, exhilarating ending in Lillian, but it's certainly a play worth seeing. And uh, in case you want to see the movie, um, that's available on DVD. Mm-hmm. And Charles Boyer plays Billy Bigelow, of all people. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how in musical adaptations, um, Sometimes the ending <laughs> gets changed quite a bit. I uh, <laughs> we, we we've been discussing my fair lady. Fair lady there was sure. there was one thing I wanted to mention just as a point of interest. I I do have um, a copy of the Pygmalion film um, on DVD, and I was watching it to to, to uh, remind myself some of the uh, similarities and the differences. And uh, as we know in the original play Pygmalion, uh, the last scene is effectively the scene, the confrontation scene uh, between Eliza and uh, Higgins at uh, I believe it's still at Mrs. Higgins' home where uh, you know, the equivalent of the scene where she sings Without You in the musical where she says uh, they confront each other and she explains why she doesn't want to come back. Uh, And uh, that is the last scene in Pygmalion, but um, in the movie of Pygmalion, we do follow Higgins back to his house, and we see basically what we see at the in the final scene in the musical. He is he does turn on the recordings of Liza's voice, and he's listening to them, and then she does come in. And uh, we see a big close-up of her standing at the door, and she says, I wash my face and hands before I come. I did. Uh, then we see the back of Higgins's head, and he says, Eliza, 
where the devil or where the hell are my slippers? And that is fade out. We never go back to see her reaction, what she says after that. So in a way, that's um, arguably more intriguing than uh, the this solution of the musical apparently in the original production it says at that point eliza has tears in her eyes she understands and then we have the fade out and of course uh, as we've discussed there's a major major reconception and restaging for the current bartlett chair production at lincoln center so it, it, one could do uh, <laughs> I, I suppose a graduate thesis on uh, uh changes in 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 uh well even maybe even in, in just that piece from from mm. to to the film to to my fair lady and lilium and carousel is another fascinating fascinating example it always strikes me uh given we given the, we've heard that rogers and hammerstein tried musicalizing pygmalion and saying that they could not and i remember a radio interview with richard rogers him saying we just couldn't do it uh clearly they couldn't have watched the movie because <laughs> the movie is so close to the musical and uh, fills in the blanks that the play does not um fill in so uh i'm very surprised that they it, it's it's inconsistent to me that they didn't see that movie uh, because if they saw that movie, I think they could have done it. That's an excellent point. I just wanted to ask uh, both of you, is this a a new trend or has this always happened where uh, there's a big show on Broadway and the original source material, some off-Broadway company does a production of it to uh, kind of get on the heels <laughs> of it? You know, nothing comes to mind, but I'll tell you this. If I were a producer, uh, back when the Fantastics closed on Sullivan Street, and now we're just closed at um, the Theater Center, as it's now called, I would do a production of Edmund Rostand's Les Romanesques, uh, because I would be interested to see what the genesis of the Fantastics was. How close is the musical of the Fantastics to that play, which it is adapted from? I have no idea. I've never read it. I've never seen it. I've never been offered a production anywhere. Will somebody please do this Edmund Rostand play? You're always doing Cyrano de Bergerac, do this one so we can see how close it is to the Fantastics. James, your question is a really interesting one, and I, 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 I'm sure it must have happened before. I can't think of specific examples either. Of course, in a lot of a lot of cases, uh, many people feel that the musical has so superseded the play that uh, sure. No, but you know, but but all the more reason if the rarer the play is in terms of production. How about Green Grow the Lilacs? Did we mention that recently? Wouldn't that be fascinating to see somebody do that? Especially since Sondheim made that statement about the uh, homosexual undertones in it. I, uh, you know, so uh, let's see if uh, we agree with him. I was thinking about indecent. Uh... Less. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. God, God of Vengeance was done right. Yeah. yeah, good point. Yeah, point. Yes. Oh, Peter, you got over to Theater Row where you got a chance to see uh, two shows. One was Randy writes a novel and Stage Life. So why don't we start with Randy writes a novel? <laughs> this is a terrific evening. Uh, what you're looking at is. Um, 
essentially a puppet that looks very much like the Avenue Q puppets, but you just have one of them, and he's written a novel, as the title promises, and he's going to read it to us, except he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't get around to it because he has so much to say about life in general. He starts off with a complaint about uh, going to CVS and where they have these scanner machines, um, which you can go to to check out your items instead of going to human beings and how difficult those machines are. They are. I absolutely refuse to go to them, so they certainly gave me uh, quite a chuckle. And um, it's just a rant about this, that, and everything. Now, what's <laughs> what's kind of interesting about the program, Randy is played by Randy. They will not tell you um, who the person is manipulating the puppet and or, I'm not sure, the person who's doing all the dialogue. I just don't know if it's one and the same. It's a perfectly cryptic program, and it's a perfectly delightful evening uh, because it amazes me how people um, who manipulate puppets, and this is a puppet with two eyes and a mouth and nothing else, and how many expressions can be made by that mouth, considering it's just one straight line. But puppeteers can do that, and they do it extraordinarily well, and this person who does it does it extraordinarily well, too. The irony is that uh, I think there's a possibility that Dame Edna influenced this show. For one thing, um, the puppet or the person (laughs) manipulating it, I have no idea, uh, says he comes from Australia, which indeed is where Dame Edna comes from. But just as Dame Edna used to ask people in the audience questions, uh, like, what color is the rug in your bathroom? And you hear brown, and she'd make a face, you know, (laughs) saying that sounds terrible. Uh, These mundane questions that, while up making the audience roar with laughter. (laughs) The same thing happens here. There's interaction with the audience um, and uh, the questions are asked, mundane questions, and somehow the answers, while rather nondescript answers, turn out to be quite hilarious. It's 75 minutes long. There's, of course, no intermission with that type of length. And I don't believe that any show uh, is going to resemble the one before it because of those audience questions. But I also got the impression that Randy, whoever he is, or they are, uh, certainly does a lot of improv and goes with the flow. And um, so I, I'd even be inclined to go back again. I had such a good time watching this uh, experience even though we don't get to hear what the novel is. Frankly, I hope there's a sequel where we do hear what the novel is, because I'd like another chance to spend time with Randy. Well, Peter, am I to understand that you never find out the names of the name? Or yeah! Names? Yeah! <laughs> I, gosh, I mean, Nadi, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I'd like to know. I'd like to shake this guy or these guys' hands, frankly, because I think they do such a good job. But um, there's a bio in the program for Randy, uh, which seems to bear no relation to reality. But um, it says, you know, on the left-hand side of the page, you know, Randy, dot, 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 all the way dots, all the, those dots over to the other side where it says Randy. That's it. So um, to be fair, okay, I'll spill the beans. I will say that an internet search did allow me to find at least one person who's involved, but um, but <laughs> they don't want us to know that uh, for, for one reason or another. I guess they want to make Randy seem as real as possible, and uh, Randy is, does come across as quite real. Wow. <laughs> So uh, Randy Writes a Novel out of Australia. They have uh, on the randywritesanovel.com website, they've got uh, a YouTube clip there 
from the Melbourne Comedy Festival if it'll give you just a hint of uh, what this show is about. But, you know, three thumbs up from Peter. <laughs> so. <laughs> right. uh, so tell us about Stage Life. Uh, stage Life is a very uh, <laughs> retro but rewarding evening. Now, this really tells you uh, about theater the way it used to be. This show could have been produced in the 50s because much of what happens in this show is taken from transcripts, from quotations, from uh, articles. And specifically, if you know the book The Passionate Playgoer, there are at least two sketches that I recognize that come from The Passionate Playgoer, a very rewarding book that um, is simply a compendium of articles here and there. Uh, Walter Kerr's review of My Fair Lady is in it, um, a, a, a pan of Life with Father from a, a, a communist publication is in there. But what's also in there is a short story called Memoirs to a Bad Man, which I think was originally um, published in the Saturday Evening Post. And actually, it became a movie, but it was um, changed from the theater in on Broadway to Hollywood. The movie became The Bad and the Beautiful, a 1952 movie that was very successful, won five Oscars, including one for screenplay. I'm sorry that, of course, it didn't uh, take place in the theater, and I've often wondered if they felt well – uh, people are more interested in the movies than the theater. And it was only two years after All About Eve. And obviously when they started working on the movie, it was probably one year before All About, uh, after All About Eve. So, so we have to um, forgive them that for changing it to Hollywood. But uh, the story is about a producer who was, um, well, a real son of a bitch. And um, frankly, you're not going to come away feeling that uh, he was that nice a man because there is such a thing as tough love. But this is the toughest love you could ever give because he purposely sabotaged um, a director, a writer and a, a female star purposely claiming that he was doing them a favor by doing it. And that was his motivation. Well, there are nicer way to do things, you know. Um, I don't think he had to be as severe as he was in making it happen. This sketch is in the show, but I, I don't know why um, the author of the show thought it was a good idea to split up the story. So it, it it's given in dribs and drabs, and I wish it would just played all the way through. Maybe he felt it was too long, but I think it would have been a very good um, final scene for the show. But it's still worth hearing because it's a wonderful story. There's also one that's based on uh, two critics. Uh, who are being interviewed, and um, they're asked questions, and every one of the questions they answer with are cliches the critics always use to describe plays or performances, you know, incandescent, you know, that type of thing. So that comes from Passion of Playgoer as well. It's sprinkled with a, with a lot of quotations from uh, uh, Thornton Wilder, uh, Mark Twain. Um, people come out and just give a quotation and then walk off stage. There's a sketch involving a streetcar named Desire that I believe is based on something that actually did happen. There's one that starts off with a letter being written, Dear Mr. Barrymore, and it's about Barrymore being fired. But there's a surprise there, too. So now, David Belasco's mentioned, Max Gordon is quoted. If these names mean nothing to you, I'm not sure you're going to have a very good time. But if you want to know what theater was like, 
before um, when it was really a cottage industry before it became a corporate thing. Uh, this will tell you what it was like. It's 90 minutes. It has no intermission. Uh, Judy McLean is sensational in it, playing a myriad of characters. Uh, she's really, really quite fine in playing everything from a, a starstruck uh, newbie to um, a woman who reads Macbeth and has a very different reading on what Macbeth could be. Uh, sorry, what Macbeth is because she's an Agatha Christie fan and she approaches it as if it's a mystery. Um, that's a very funny sketch and it got uh, applause at the end of it. It uh, was the one the audience enjoyed most. Uh, Martina Vidmar is very good in supporting roles. Uh, so this is a worthwhile evening. But I warn you, if you're the type of person who believes that the, the American theater started with Rent or Wicked, you're not going to have much of a good time. It really is for people who want to know the way it was. Uh, and um, <laughs> there are charms to be had there in seeing the greats uh, being remembered again. So even though it could have been produced 60 years ago, I was personally glad to see it on the scene and thought it was very rewarding. All right. This week we had the sad news that Patricia Morrison had passed away. Uh, Michael, do you want to talk a little bit about Patricia? Yes, sad news, but a life very well lived. Uh, Patricia Morrison, born Eileen Patricia Augusta Fraser Morrison, on March 19th, 1915, died May 20th. 2018, best known uh, to the world as this original star of the Cole Porter musical Kiss Me Kate, in which he had the dual role of uh, Kate and Lily Vanessi. And she played that role in the original production and then in a TV version, which is very much available uh, for home video viewing, and it's really fantastic. She plays opposite Alfred Drake, uh, her original star in that video, and I highly, highly recommend it to anyone uh, who who cares about Kiss Me Kate or, or, or the theater. It's, it's really one of the best TV adaptations I've seen. Unfortunately, it only survives in black and white kinescope, as is the case of with many shows from that era, but it's still pretty amazing. Uh, Patricia uh, made her Broadway debut in 1933 in a comedy called Growing Pains, which uh, did not, it only ran about a month. Um, next, she was in Victoria Regina uh, as understudy to to Helen Hayes. Hayes yeah. uh, and this, uh, and she also, uh, uh, I mean that 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 was December twenty sixth, nineteen thirty five to June nineteen thirty six. So that that was uh, quite an event for her, uh, obviously. Then in nineteen thirty eight, she was in an operetta called The Two Bouquets, and also in that show was Alfred Drake. So that was a precursor to their incredible partnership. Uh, about 10 years later, I suppose, in Kiss Me, Kate. Uh, Patricia's other Broadway credits, All of Be Praised, uh, musical 1944, uh, and then, then came Kiss Me, Kate, and then she replaced, uh, at some point, uh, um, there, I've read different accounts, but I believe it was at the end of the run of The King and I, she went into the role of Anna Leah Owens. And uh, I've seen video footage of her uh, in the role from that time, but also uh, she is famously on the 1971 Tony Awards telecast. That was the year that they brought, uh, it was the 25th uh, year of the Tonys, and they brought stars back from from the beginning, most of whom, and so many of whom were still alive and able to 
still perform. And so among the other amazing moments on that show, Patricia Morrison, uh, and Yul Brynner do Shall We Dance from The King and I. Uh, Gertrude Lawrence obviously was long deceased by that point. So they went to Patricia and she just did an amazing job. Um, on top of all of that, though, uh, Patricia had a really wonderful career in film. And I, and I just watched uh, what I think is considered one of her best films. It's called Dressed to Kill. And it's the, I believe it's the last uh, Sherlock Holmes movie in that series that starred Basil Rathbone. And she, uh, uh, she's, uh, to make a long story short, Patricia is the bad girl in it. And it's a very interesting role uh, that allows for a lot of, uh, um, just uh, gives her lots of opportunities to emote and even to uh, play different characters. I won't I won't uh, say any more about that because it's a very well-written, very interestingly plotted film. Uh, get your hands on that if you like. But uh, Patricia was our guest on the podcast on August 5th, 2013. Uh, James, I'm sure, will link to it in the show notes. Uh, I had gotten a chance to interview her separately once or twice, and she was really extraordinary woman, uh, very beautiful to the end. And she also was very happily one of those people who seemed to have total recall. Yes. Of, <laughs> of, yes, uh, indeed. Know, all these amazing things that happened in there in theater. So I, uh, she will be missed, but it, and, uh, but again, it, it was, uh, uh, just a really, really wonderful long life. And she, um, she was with friends when she passed and we, we really say rest in peace and we'll think of her on many occasions and especially when we uh, dig out the two uh, cast albums of Kiss Me Kate. There's the original recording, which is phenomenal. Uh, then there's a later recording that was done uh, to coincide with the television production. Uh, and that one uh, is in stereo. So they're both great and just Glad we have that those as remembrances of her. I can still hear her laugh when I brought up to her the fact that she was in this musical Allah Be Praised, mm -hmm. uh, which opened April 20th, 1944 and closed May 6th, 1944. 20 performances. And it's very famous because it was produced by Alfred Bloomingdale. Yes, that Bloomingdale uh, for which the store is named. And um, at that time, George S. Kaufman was the big play doctor of the era. And uh, Bloomingdale called him in and said, what should I do? Um, can you help? And he says, well, my advice would be that you uh, close the show and keep the store open nights uh, so that you can make some money that way uh, because you're not going to make any money from Allah Be Praised. And so that was uh, – and I still heard um, <laughs> Patricia Morrison as she remembered that story. It was quite nice. <laughs> Did either of you see the uh, New York Times obituary? Uh, yes. I the uh, headline on it was Patricia Morrison, 103 dies, Broadway's first Kate to be kissed. What a great mm. line! Mm. And yes. beautiful, beautiful black and white photos of her uh, and Alfred Drake and Kiss Me Kate in 1948. So um, encourage. Uh, well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as our interview with her in uh, from uh, previously, as Michael mentioned. We'll put that in the show notes if you'd like to uh, go over and check those things out. And a reminder that uh, Kiss Me Kate is scheduled to come back to Broadway again with Kelly O'Hara. I don't 
I don't think I've read other casting than that. Have, have either of you guys? No, no, that's no. all I know too. Mm. That's all they yeah. need. <laughs> <laughs> One person kiss me, Kate. <laughs> There's nobody to kiss her. Okay, well that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, and I know that lots of you are looking forward to the trivia. I want to remind everybody that you could subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get Broadway Radio's podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including the Patricia Morrison New York Times uh, obituary and our previous interview with her, links to Evan Pappas and the Argyle Theater and uh, various different things. All can be found at the uh, show page at broadwayradio.com. So, Peter, tell us about the answer to last week's trivia. Well, the question was five of the six Rodgers and Hammerstein movie musicals based on their hit Broadway shows, so State Fair is not included, had something in common, but Carousel was the exception. Why? Well, I have to say Ed Glazier had two answers that did fit. Uh, the Carousel was the only R&H film told in flashback, which was uh, not the case of the original show. And it was the only one in which a lead performer left and had to be replaced. And that was Frank Sinatra, who was originally going to be Billy Bigelow. But there was something about um, CinemaScope was just happening then. And because of cameras in theaters or something like that, they had to shoot the movie twice. Uh, one for the regular uh, theaters that didn't have CinemaScope and one that did. And Frank Sinatra said, excuse me. Uh, well, he probably didn't say excuse me. But anyway, he said, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not filming two movies that's what essentially you're asking me to do and you're asking me to do twice the work so i'm leaving so that's why gordon mcrae came in um so you know those are good answers uh they're fine answers and they're right answers and i can't disagree with them the one that i was looking for the one that came from todd s Purdom's book something wonderful was the fact it was the only one of their films not to get nominated for at least one oscar all the other ones did um get oscars and of course the sound of music um <laughs> won the oscars best picture and um made um some other noise at the oscars as well anyway daniel schwartzberg was the first to get it by followed by jack leshner and Deb Popple. So those were the three people who got it. So for this week's question, a show that closed some months shy of becoming Broadway's longest running musical shuttered 10 years to the day of the opening of a show that did become Broadway's longest running musical. What are the two shows? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If you have that answer... Uh, well, email us at tributebroadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you are on the right track. By the way, just to interject, um, the irony uh, regarding Carousel, the film, is that, as it turned out, they did not have to film yeah. the movie twice. They uh, During that period, they, they realized that uh, they developed the uh, um, technology to uh, reduce, I guess, the, the cinemascope uh, prints to, to show – in non-cinemascope films, but uh, but there were several films that exist in complete, two complete versions. Uh, among them, Oklahoma, Brigadoon, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yeah, I do know that. Um, uh, so uh, the question becomes: Would we have enjoyed seeing Frank Sinatra as Billy Bigelow? Can you see that happening? 
I thought that in some ways he sounded like he would be great for the role, but not in others. Um, Todd uh, Purdom seems to think it was a really fascinating idea in, in, in the Something Wonderful book. Yeah, I, I, I think of Billy as a, a bigger man than Frank Sinatra. Yes. Um, I, I think he does have to have that size. And both John Raitt and uh, Gordon McRae at least seemed uh, that large. Um, who knows what they were like in real life? Because so many times uh, people have said Alfred Drake seemed so big on stage and uh, he really wasn't that tall. Similarly speaking, I'll never forget working the red carpet at the Tonys and Robert Goulet came by and he was much shorter than I expected he'd be. So uh, so you never know. But anyway, they do seem to play large on film. Um Gordon McRae and Alfred, uh, I'm sorry, and John Raitt um, do come across as big guys. So, uh, so who knows? I've never seen Frank Sinatra, in my opinion, get lost in a role. It's always Frank Sinatra playing a role, so I'm not sure that he would mm. have been my favorite Billy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, the, the, the singing would have been very different. The keys would have yeah. been brought way down yeah. as they are for his, for his recordings of the, those songs that he did. Um, there are pictures of him uh, as Billy Bigelow. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say, he just looks wrong to me. That little scarf around the neck uh, yeah. looks, looks strange, too. I mean, as so... So maybe it's all for the best. No, Carousel is not considered one of the best um, Rodgers and Hammerstein movies. And I heard it said to be the worst of them, in fact. And that even includes South Pacific with all those strange color changes. But um, but still, um, I, 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 I don't think it would have been a better picture with Sinatra in it. I hated the whole flashback thing. Uh, I, what do you guys do? How did that happen? How did the, 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 the Carousel movie become so different than the stage production, whereas the other Rodgers and Hammerstein movies... Well, you know, it, it, it's funny you mentioned this because I was having a discussion with somebody the other day about the current revival, and uh, he was saying, uh, you know, um, Billy commits suicide in this revival, and that doesn't happen uh, in the original show. But it does happen in the original show. Yeah. It does not happen in the movie. Yeah. So that's one change. And so one uh, wonders if um, Henry and Phoebe Efron uh, took it from there, figuring uh, that a lot of stuff had to be watered down and just uh, made it that way. Frankly, I don't think the flashback's a bad idea at all um yeah so. i don't think so either not not in theory uh they, they may not have done it very well uh i was just talking with a friend about this last night after the flashback uh no i'm sorry after the after the scene in heaven i think it would have been better if they went uh directly to the the fairground scene whereas they don't they have the main title and then they have another scene in heaven before they finally get to the fairground so that might have that might have made it an improvement in that section of the film. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, do you think that Roger and Hammerstein were intimately involved in the filming of it or the decision-making process? Huh? So that, that goes into the book goes into it. And I'd read that or they were involved yeah. in Oklahoma. They were not involved in carousel uh, or the King and I, but the King and I of course turned out very well anyway, I, I think. Yeah. Um, and they, Oh yeah. Then they became heavily involved, heavily, heavily involved with South Pacific as the film. Hmm. All right. So uh, on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Maybe it doesn't seem like such a big deal to you, but it was for me. Anyway, I probably remember it better than it actually was. Benjamin. 
take care of this sword for me a while, would you? Sure. Yeah.